All right, so coming into our study of uh, Revelation this week, uh, last week we got into uh, chapter 6, and we were looking at the, the first six seals of seven, and as these seals are broken, of course, all these terrible uh, things are released. And as I mentioned last week, there is this kind of interesting pause in, in the action here. And so instead of, uh, instead of going directly into the seventh seal, there's this, there's this moment where everything shifts. And so uh, chapter 7 is actually not about the seals. The purpose and timing of this little divergence in the storyline is extremely important. It, it's, it's purposeful, meaningful. Uh, now, you'll recall that the seven seals represent the world as we know it, the world until God's will is done. So it is not necessarily a countdown to the end of the world, uh, particularly the first six seals represent just the world as it is in the interim, in this period. Uh, those first six seals progress rather quickly. Uh, and as they're opened, various calamities are introduced to us. Uh, there are false gods, there are false religions, there's war and violence, there's famine and poverty, there's the martyrdom of the saints, and of course there are natural disasters. And we read that and we think, well, we've, we've seen a lot of that stuff, so th that must mean that, that, uh, that it's the end times. Well, yeah, it's the end times. But those things have existed essentially in our world in the interim with uh, almost continuously. So this is less a harbinger of the last days than it is a statement of the status quo. This is our present reality. These things exist, have existed since the time that the sacrifice and resurrection occurred and will exist until everything is perfected by God's ultimate will. This is the interim. The lamb has already been sacrificed, and the lamb is now worthy to open the seals. And we're introduced to that fact, and then we see those first six seals uh, opened rather quickly. But six, remember, in Revelation is almost Seven represents perfection. And so in the almost, all of these things are occurring. The six seals uh, don't necessarily then give us a clear picture of the timeline. But the seventh seal will be different because seven represents wholeness. It's, it's fullness. It's the, the whole idea of Sabbath and, and peace, shalom, the shalom of the Sabbath. And so the seventh seal represents a fullness of time. So once the seventh seal is broken, this process, whatever it is, is complete. And we would expect the narrative to move on to a new thing. And that's what's interesting about this pause, is just as we reach that point where the seventh seal is about to be broken and, and the anticipation is building of what is it that the Lord will do in this new era, when time is full, when this process is full and complete, what is it that, what is the new thing that the Lord will do next? And just as we're awaiting that, 
the narrative slows down to highlight a very particular divine priority. And so what we encounter in chapter 7 is not another calamity. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The vision sort of takes an aside, takes us out of that seven seals narrative and, and introduces us to something very different, a focus on something else that needs to happen in this time of almost, in this interim period. There's something else that God needs to have happen. And it is perhaps the most important must be of the interim narrative. And that's where we open up in chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So John's vision here sort of begins to play with the, the visuals of the narrative. Um, up to this time, our whole discussion of seals has been about breaking seals open. And suddenly John says, no, wait a minute, there's some seals that need to be applied. And so there's this bit of a play uh, with that particular metaphor. And, and an angel comes up who has a seal, presumably the same kind of seal that, like a signet ring uh, uh, or a stamp that would have been used, uh, like, like was used to seal the scroll. But this new seal is a seal of ownership that replaces the seals of waiting. It wasn't unusual in ancient culture, it wasn't unusual, particularly in Hebrew culture, for, the, uh, for a servant to be sealed by their master, to be marked in some way, to identify them as theirs. And it was more really to protect them than anything else. Uh, they come under the protection of the master's household. Deuteronomy even describes this uh, rather vivid process by which a servant who's being released who chooses to stay in that master's household can choose can uh, announce their intention to stay and to continue to be a part of that household. And their master takes them to the doorframe of the house and pierce their ear against the doorframe. And that pierced ear becomes a symbol that uh, they are not just servants anymore, but they are bond servants to that household. That they uh, have chosen that master they have chosen to stay there, and they are now marked. And in marking them, they become a part of that household, even receiving part of the inheritance of that household. But here, the angel brings um, the seal, such as would have been used to seal the scroll, figuratively then, placing that seal upon the forehead of these servants. Now, the seal is about authority. You, you placed your seal on the, on the scroll because you had the authority to do so. The Lord has the authority to seal these servants as his own. 
and he is the only one with the authority so that it cannot be revoked, just as the seals on the scroll could only be opened by those who had the authority to open them. The seal that God places on his servants cannot be revoked by anybody but the Lord. And so in verse 4, it says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And he goes on to enumerate the tribes and, uh, and reveal to us that there's 12,000 taken from each tribe. Now, I would caution us at this point to not read that as being literal. The term thousand implies an ancient census. Census were generally uh, made for either military or taxation purposes. Generally, then, you counted men of military age or working age, and that was your census. That was your count. And so when we read, for instance, the story of the feeding of the 4,000 or the feeding of the 5,000, there didn't just happen to be exactly 4,000 or exactly 5,000 people there that day. It was sort of a general term for it's about this many people. It's about this large of a group. Uh, in a military campaign, thousands is all os off often an, an estimate of how many warriors you had at your disposal. You might remember the story when David makes a census of, of Israel in order to count all of the uh, military age men. And it's not something that God was particularly looked on with favor, and so there's a lot of problems around it, but he finishes the census anyway. And at the end, there are 800,000 plus 500,000 uh, military age men. Well, it, we're not saying that it worked out exactly to those numbers. You wouldn't expect that, right? If you counted a whole population and said, uh, in this population, there just, it just happened to be exactly 800,000 who were able to fight. No, it's kind of a big round number. So it's, a, it's kind of a general estimate. Not that it's inaccurate, but that it's not to be taken as uh, an exact number necessarily. The number 12 is closely associated with God's chosen people. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the first covenant. And you have the 12 apostles. That is the new covenant. And it's interesting, whenever uh, the, the, uh, one of the tribes or one of the apostles is no longer able to do that job, there's this sort of shifting around uh, to make sure that there's always 12. So, for instance, this list in Revelation of the 12 tribes is slightly different from any other listing of the 12 tribes. And there's a lot of theological debate as to what it is that that means, but we won't get into all of that this morning, other than it's always got to be 12. Why is that? Well, because the number 12 is associated with God's chosen people, whether in the, in the Old Covenant or the New. Meaning, when we say 12,000, figuratively, what we're saying is a large number of the Lord's chosen people. The tribes themselves are also figurative here, and I'll tell you why I say that. Because John hears the census 
And then he turns around to look at what's going on. Now, John has done this with us before. You might remember that he hears about the Lion of Judah, and then he turns to see the Lion of Judah, and what does he actually see? He's a lamb as though it had been slaughtered. Well, the same situation occurs here in verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Right? So here's that sort of common device. Uh, Something is described. John hears about it. When he looks, he sees something else. But the something else is not a new element. It's the same element. So we've been described 12 tribes, a large multitude of the people of God. When he turns around to look, it is not just the 12 tribes of Israel, but it is people from every tribe and nation, from all peoples uh, around the world, and it is an uncountable number. Sometimes you'll have commentators who will suggest that these are two different groups of people, and and I, I can't quite get there, can't quite buy that. This is the same group of people. The census count figuratively describes the uncountable multitude. So not only is 144,000 people a figurative number of the perfect count of God's chosen people from every nation and every time, it, it includes not only the nation of Israel, but every nation and tribe as God's promise to the nation of Israel is that he would bless all the nations of the earth through them. And his promise to us is that we have been grafted into the tree of Israel. Also don't want you to get hung up on the imagery of these people being in heaven. Our fascination with heaven is such that we kind of take these visions and go, oh, well, that's what heaven's going to look like. That is not the point of this vision right now. The point is not to, to give you a vision of your future because this is all prejudgment right here. Okay? What this is, is the people of God, the mass multitude of the people of God before the throne of God. This is a dream vision. So what significance does this have that these servants of God are gathered before the throne of God? Well, God is withholding final judgment specifically for this divine census. That's the point of the pause here. That's why there's this pause in the narrative. The six seals are broken. All we have to do in order to realize the fullness of time is allow the lamb to break the seventh seal. And God says there's something else that has to happen in this interim time. My count of my people, my chosen, has to be complete. It has to be finished. This pause is purposeful. Now, remember, we talked about last week with the six seals, that God rather passively allows humanity to experience the consequences of all of its own choices. 
we invite sin, we invite brokenness into the world, and God says, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that sin. You've, you've called it upon yourself. What he is much more purposeful about is counting up those who are his. And so is, is of, of all the things that happen in this seven seals narrative, this seems to be the thing that is the most important to the Lord. The divine perspective is that the most important must be of the interim is the collecting of the people of God. So 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. In other words, for roughly 2,000 years, six seals have been broken. The seventh seal is still waiting. It hasn't come to its final fruition. And why? Because the Lord loves the world. The, the Lord is merciful. The Lord is patient. And just like he tells the martyrs under the throne, you need to wait a little longer until the number is full, until it's complete. So who are these? Who are these in the multitude? The multitude are those who see the world's brokenness and choose the Lord instead. They witness the damage of idolatry. They see what deception has done. They see what hatred and violence has done to creation. And they reject the feudal administrations of men who claim that they can fix it. Because usually they fix it by breaking it some more. They witness the injustice. They witness the poverty, the famine, the bitterness, and the death. And they receive into themselves the accountability for their own sin. The accountability of essentially having invited this calamity and having, having participated in what broke the world in the first place. They seek forgiveness, they seek redemption, they seek truth and hope and life from the Lord. And so the question for us is not so much who are these people, the question is are we among them? Because this is not a vision of some future gathering in heaven. This is a vision of those people of the Lord who are presently before the throne of God. This is a present gathering. And in verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever Amen. So what is the ceiling? What is the ceiling of the servants of God all about? God's seal is nothing less than salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. And those who belong to our God are sealed with salvation. They stand presently before the throne of God. And it all comes back to this. We all serve something. 
we're all servants of something. We can serve idols, we can serve ourselves, we can serve a wide variety of sin and false gods in this world, or we can serve Christ. Those who serve Christ are sealed with his salvation. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We reject the false life, and we choose to become part of the household of the Lord. And then we're marked by the head of this household. We are marked now as members of the household in his own possession. And so what is that mark exactly? Is it a seal of wax or clay like on the scroll? Sometimes people suggest that it's a mark of the cross, you know, the marks of the cross on our forehead. Now that's, that's kind of missing, missing the point. Kind of have to go back to Ephesians for this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. They already had this teaching in Ephesus. They already knew what the seal was. God's spirit is the seal that marks his servants. God's presence in our lives is a deposit promise of what is to come. The spirit of God working in and through us verifies that we are actually part of his household and therefore going to receive, whether we're worthy of it or not, going to receive an inheritance in the kingdom. Verse 13 and 14, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What do we take away from all of this? Well, here's one thing I'd really like you to take away from this. The Lord's servants are not necessarily spared tribulation. These folks are not robed in white because they skipped the tribulation. They're robed in white because they emerged from it. They came through it. They came out of it. They are overcomers they are martyrs they are faithful unto death they are washed in the blood of the lamb now as we proceed through the rest of the narrative there will be acts of judgment coming down from the throne of heaven which are not uh, inflicted upon those who are sealed that really shouldn't surprise us now we don't know exactly what that looks like in the end times but it really shouldn't surprise us because there are afflictions of sin that we don't experience now. That living godly lives sometimes spare us the brokenness of the world. Not always, because the brokenness of the world is pervasive and it tends to get in places where it doesn't belong. But we will be spared a number of things based on simply living out our lives the way that God instructed us to. 
There are afflictions. There are, there are consequences. There is suffering that we need not experience if we avoid the sin that causes it. But that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that this seal protects the believers, the servants, from every bad thing that happens. I know we'd sort of like to believe that. I know that a lot of people have made a lot of money selling us the idea that we will miss out on everything. The doctrine of the rapture, which is somewhat ubiquitous today, even though it has a relatively novel history, is basically the sales pitch that things are going to get worse, but it's okay because Jesus is going to pluck you out of it before any of it happens. Here's the thing about that when we're reading through Revelation. The seven churches would have really balked at that understanding. Because the seven churches are essentially told, things are going to get worse, you're going to live through it, you might even die but be faithful to the Lord. And so now we come along and we say, well, yeah, they had to live through it, but we, we won't. We, we won't experience tribute. God wouldn't want us to have to do that. Well, the early churches would maybe take offense at that understanding. But a lot of us have been allured by the promise of skipping out on hardship. The assumption would have frustrated early Christians because what they were given was not a promise of escape. What they were given was the faith to overcome. The Lord's servants are impervious to final judgment. This is what's revealed to us in the letters. Again, the letters don't say, I'm going to spare you all of these troubles. I'm going to spare you all of these problems. What they do say is that you will eat from the tree of life, that you will not be hurt by the second death, that I will feed you the new manna, that I will uh, bring you healing, I will bring you a new name, I'll give you authority over the nations. You'll have a name that will never be blotted out from the book of life. You will dwell in the temple of the Lord as pillars of the temple, you will be recipients of the new Jerusalem, and you will sit with the Lord on the throne. Not because you escaped trial, but because when trial came, you remained faithful to the Lord. Salvation is declared for servants, not spectators. Now this is this is the hard teaching. It's a teaching that doesn't often come up in the church today. But salvation is declared for servants, not spectators. We ask the question about salvation. What is it that I need to do in order to be saved? That is a broken question already. Because what we're looking for is some list that we can work through. Give me the list. Give me the steps. Give me some. And so that when I'm done, I'm done. The reason that Scripture doesn't give us an overt list like that is because the whole purpose is to draw us into a relationship with Christ. The whole intent is that we would become His servants. 
our lives, if we are servants, reflect him. We cannot serve two masters. Either we're servants of Jesus Christ or we're servants of something less than Jesus Christ. And those are the only two options. There's no neutral territory. There's no middle ground. There is Jesus and there is everything else. If Jesus comes first in our lives, then our lives will reflect his glory. We will serve him. We will be more than fans of Jesus. We'll be on his team. And finally, it is the blood of Christ that spares us final judgment. And I know this is confusing for some people. Think, well, well either, either what Jesus did saves us completely, or you're saying we've got to be servants of Jesus. These things are not mutually exclusive. If we believe in Jesus, if we love God, we will be his servants. If we are choosing the world over Christ, we will serve something in the world. And so to believe in Christ, to love Christ, to receive Christ, is to reject the world and choose something different. If I choose that something different, I become a servant of Christ. I cannot be in Christ without serving Christ. But, and this is where it gets confusing, my service to Christ can never earn Christ. So I am in Christ because that's the, that's the relationship that I have with him. But it is not my service to Christ that earns me sal salvation. It is the grace of Christ that I receive because I'm in him. So let's stop making this distinction between works and faith, okay? If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we will live for him and we'll do good works that we were created in advance to do. I serve because his sacrifice cleanses my sin. I serve because his sacrifice has redeemed my life. I believe in him. He is life. He is truth. He is hope. He is love. And seeking him for us is seeking life. If we face trial, even unto death, what we need to understand from this narrative, what we need to understand from the vision at this point is that there is no darkness today that could possibly surpass the light of him tomorrow.